0: Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice
1: everywhere. Let us pick up our books and pen our pens. They are our most powerful weapons. Welcome to Talking Social Studies. You're listening to episode 44, Spanish Flu versus COVID-19 with Kenneth C. Davis for April 28, 2020.
0: This is the podcast where we talk about social studies and education today. Here you will find conversations about strategies, resources, ideas, and more, all designed to help today's social studies teachers and their work with students. One child, one
1: teacher, and one pen can change the world. And today we are extremely lucky because we have somebody that is an amazing author and somebody who is incredibly relevant uh, right now with his work, and that's uh, Kenneth C. Davis. So Kenneth, if you could start off and tell us a little bit about yourself and about your book that came out a couple of years ago, Um, More Deadly Than War, and just give us a little bit about who you are and how this topic ended up uh, jumping in for you.
0: Great, good morning, Chris, and thank you all, Amy, Chris, Chris, everyone for having me. This is a great pleasure and I I can see you, Chris. I know everyone can only hear you and you have a t-shirt that says History Matters, I believe. And no no subject I think right now uh, proves that saying more than the subject we are living through. Um, Most people know me as the author first of Don't Know Much About History, which I am horrified to say came out 30 years ago. It just doesn't seem possible that I wrote that book 30 years ago, but here we are. Don't know much about history. Uh, Came out, nobody had ever heard of me. Nobody, uh, I mean, it has a catchy title, of course. And uh, if you are of a certain age, you remember Sam Cooke singing, don't know much about history. But um, the title was uh, all too appropriate 30 years ago because Americans then as now, don't know much about history. And I couldn't understand that because to me, history was always alive, relevant, interesting, fascinating, intriguing, but most of all significant. And I always felt that history was interesting because it was stories of real people doing real things. It was not a long list of dates and battles and speeches as many people think it is. So I wanted to approach history with the same joy and and love for the subject that I had going back to my childhood and I wanted to make it accessible and approachable and conversational. So the book was written in a question and answer format and I asked questions as basic as did Christopher Columbus really discover America? Uh, What does the Declaration of Independence declare? Uh, What was Manifest Destiny? But also uh, questions that are a little bit more cheeky or irreverent. You know, what was so great about the Great Depression and why is there a statue of Benedict Donald's boot in Saratoga, New York? Um, Lo and behold, uh, people weren't uh, disinterested in history. They just wanted the version that was a little more interesting than what they got in high school. And the book became a New York Times bestseller, uh, stayed on the list for 35 weeks, went on to sell multiple million copies and then launched the whole Don't Know Much About series, which took the same approach to other subjects that I thought were interesting and important and I enjoy geography, mythology, the American Civil War, uh, the Bible. Um, And I've always took took the approach that people really are interested in this stuff, they just want in a a style and a format that's a lot more appealing than it was for a lot of us in high school. Um, Over the years, and I should point out that Don't Know Much About History was written for adults. It was not written for students. It was certainly not written to replace textbooks. Uh, If anything, it was the anti-textbook. Over the years, it was very gratifying because I had a lot of teachers tell me, oh, your book is, I use it with my classrooms. We assign it in the summer. We give it a supplementary reading. We can't use it as a textbook. And that always surprised me. And as time went by, I really discovered that um, teachers, there was even something more extraordinary. I had teachers tell me they became a teacher because of my book, which is the most uh, astonishing and gratifying thing of all. So I've always taken the approach that, History is important not only because it tells us who we are and how we got to where we are, but we can absolutely learn from it and learn from the mistakes that were made as well as the successes of the past. And, again, there's no subject that proves that more than what we are in the midst of right now. The uh, Mm -hmm. pandemic, the coronavirus, COVID-19, whatever we want to call it, pandemic – that the world and the United States are in the midst of is unprecedented in our lifetime. But if we go back 102 years, we have a really interesting chapter in American history that most people have never heard of, and that was the Spanish influenza pandemic of 1918-1919. It came during World War I, the last year of World War I. And for many people, World War I was in their history books, but the Spanish flu wasn't. So I really wanted to write this story of how these two things came together one hundred and two years ago and what we might learn from them. The book was published two years ago and a lot of people were interested in this in the subject, but um, obviously today now the lessons of nineteen eighteen are all the more important to us because we can learn a lot from it.
2: What would you what would you say are some of the the most important, like similarities and differences between the pandemic today and the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918.
0: The very good question, and um, what I'd say first is that the 1918 pandemic. Let me give a little overview of it, uh, perhaps even for those who haven't quite caught up <clears throat> to it yet. Um, the Sp- what became called the Spanish Flu, <clears throat> excuse me, what became known as the Spanish Flu began in the spring of 1918. It began largely in the United States on army bases where young men in very large numbers were crowded together into barracks and tents as they were getting ready to go off to World War One. Of course, it wasn't called World War I at the time. Uh, the United States had entered the war in April of 1917. We had no army, really no Navy to speak of. It took almost a year to mobilize the country to be able to, re- to be ready to send troops to Europe to take part in the fighting there, which of course had begun in August 1914. The United States had stayed neutral in that war for uh, the best part of three years. So all of a sudden you had tens of thousands of soldiers crowded into camps set set up all over the the United States. And this is where the first reports of what became known as the Spanish flu appeared. Those young soldiers got onto trains, again, crowded into very cramped conditions, then got onto ships, transports that took them to Europe by the tens of thousands. So you had 10, 11,000 soldiers crowded onto a boat About 1 million young soldiers, American soldiers, landed in France by May of 1918, and what was a localized epidemic soon became a global pandemic. In about a year's time, 675,000 Americans died of influenza and its complications. That's an extraordinary number by any measure, uh, it's about the same number of people who have died from HIV and AIDS over 30 years, to give it some perspective. It's also more than all of the soldiers who died in World War I, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam combined. So we're talking about an extraordinary number of people dying, again, in about a year's time in the United States. The worldwide toll is estimated at a low of 50 million. I've seen numbers that go as high as 100 million. So this was an extraordinary thing, and it was influenza. We are talking about a virus today, although influenza is a virus, coronavirus is a virus, they are different kinds of viruses. Um, One other point of importance, they didn't understand what a virus was in 1918. They'd seen bacteria, they knew what bacteria were, They had uh, uh, certain uh, ways of treating bacterial diseases. They had figured out that mosquitoes caused yellow fever and had eradicated yellow fever in places like Cuba and Panama, where they built the Panama Canal. But they didn't understand what a virus was yet. They couldn't see it because they didn't have microscopes powerful enough. So this sudden onslaught of this disease, which was very violent, very contagious, and killed in large numbers, and especially killed healthy young men and women in large numbers, really transformed the the country's approach to, uh, to medicine in many ways. But it was also a tremendous amount of fear. People didn't know what was going on. And because we were going through a war at the same time we were going through a pandemic, the federal government was really focused on winning the war. Everything was about winning the uh, war against Germany in 1917 and 1918. So there was no real federal response to the Spanish flu. Just quickly go into the name there because a lot of people wonder about that. It did not start in Spain, obviously. Uh, Most likely it was an avian flu and it might've been Asian in origin. We don't really know. The first reports are in Kansas, but there were earlier reports in places of an outbreak of flu in San Quentin Prison in California, a Detroit auto plant, the Ford plant in Detroit. So, because there was no CDC or National Institute of Health in 1918, there was no requirement to report an outbreak of flu. That was one of the things that the flu epidemic created that time. So it's a very different government. It's a very different America in 1918. And that has to factor in how, how we um, think about this. But as I said, it soon swept the world. Now, the name comes from the fact that Spain was a neutral country during the war, which they called the Great War. Uh, Spain did not have uh, any uh, troops obviously fighting, neutral. They stayed out of the war, non-combatant. So one of the things that meant was that they weren't censoring their newspapers to the degree that papers in the United States or Great Britain or France or Germany were. So the first published account of an epidemic outbreak in in Europe comes from Madrid. Where they report the streetcars are are shut down, the king is eventually sick, the king of Spain. The press in England, the Reuters News Service, picks this up, and that's how it became known as the Spanish flu. The Spanish, by the way, called it the Naples soldier, the Germans called it the Russian pest, the Russians called it the Chinese fever. So, uh, you know, these names always get uh, thrown around. Uh, most people did call it in English eventually the Spanish flu or the Spanish grip. Uh, grip was another word for the flu in those days. So the, there was sweeping. It was mysterious. There was very little that uh, they had at the time in the way of treatment or medication to uh, to solve it. And the death toll was extraordinary. People talked about bodies piling up and being stacked like cordwood, in hospitals, on army bases. So the level of death was quite extraordinary. I mean, we've seen pictures recently of mass being uh, a mass grave being dug in New York City, for instance. This was commonplace in places like Philadelphia. Um, and of, of course, this tremendous death and dislocation and disease and panic in the United States is going on while we're in the midst of the biggest offensive of World War II, which happens between September and uh, November of 1918. But that's why you cannot separate the flu story of 1918 from the war story of 1918. So there are a lot of differences, but there are considerable similarities just in the way people react and in the way the, the disease was fought at that time. Um, certainly there was no vaccine. Vaccines wouldn't come along until the 1940s. There was no uh, treatment other than aspirin. Um, aspirin is interesting because it was made by Bayer. Bayer was a German company. Americans thought that this disease might come from the Germans, that they would poisoned the water, or that Bayer had put something into aspirin tablets. There are actually ads taken out in 1918 by Bayer saying, you know, this is made by Americans on the banks of the Hudson River to uh, reassure Americans that they could safely take aspirin. But that was a degree of paranoia. And there was certainly an amount of censorship, lies, and propaganda at work. And that's an important point we should come back to as well. So a lot of, a lot of differences between the world of 1918 and the world today but a lot of similarities in the way people responded to this disease. And um, I think perhaps the most important thing we should probably talk about is what was successful in 1918 uh, in terms of combating the disease when they had very little information about what a virus was and very little medicine to treat it.
2: So you mentioned the censorship um, and, and the propaganda in 1918 and oftentimes, you know, in our history classes and even as teachers, we talk about how, um, you know, information today is so so readily accessible and not, I guess, filtered like it would have been in 1918. So how, how do we look at, at, you know, the Spanish flu and how they attempted to clear up information and how might we better approach that today. I mean, we see, gosh, I mean, we see people in, in political positions sharing misinformation. We see a lot of xenophobia. Um, and even trusted news sources seem to be sharing some, some pretty crazy stuff.
0: You're absolutely right. And that's a really important point. And one of the most important lessons of this history, as far as I'm concerned, lies, censorship, propaganda, outright propaganda, certainly made the situation worse in 1918, and we've seen that that's very true today. Certainly we now know and recognize widely that the Chinese government, first of all, was not forthcoming about the information they had. So that was censorship propaganda to a degree. There was even, they were floating that this was something that somehow came from an American laboratory. So those kind of things happened in 1918. I mentioned the fear that the Germans had done this. And this was published in the newspapers that um, uh, German U-boat submarines had uh, landed spies who poisoned the water supply. That was public information, published information. the prop, the, the censorship and the lies part of it is that people understood that something, people in the medical community, people in official capacities understood that something bigger than the usual flu was going on, but they kept saying, it's just the flu. It's just the grip, it will go away. It's in the military, but it won't come into the, uh, into the civilian population. Those were outright lies. And we know already that we've, um, the, the whole history of this current pandemic uh, is yet to be written. We're getting a lot of information in, in fits and spurts sometimes, but we know that a lot more was known early on than was given to the American public. And the idea that we don't panic people, that was true in 1918 and it's, uh, and it's true today. One of the best cases I can give you historically, and it relates to several of the lessons of of 1918, is that the flu had come in March, as I mentioned, it was a uh, a springtime very much like right now. The pandemic was March, April, May, slacked off in summertime. People thought then, well, this this flu season is over, this will go away. The Spanish flu came back in September to the United States And it came back more deadly, more virulent, more violent than it had in the first wave. And that's an important lesson as well. We don't know if this coronavirus is coming back in September. No one can say that with certainty yet. So that's one lesson of 1918 we should keep in mind. But it came back really aggressively and and hit first in Boston among sailors, moved into the army bases near Boston, then moved into the civilian population. Some of those sailors got on boats that went to Philadelphia. Philadelphia had its first cases early in September of 1918. And the health department knew that it was in the army bases, the naval station, the boatyard where they were building ships and planes for the Navy. And they were getting ready to have a big parade in Philadelphia. September 28, 1918, the Health Department, the Commissioner, was told do not allow this parade to go on, but he decided to allow it. He had tremendous pressure being applied to him by the political leadership of Philadelphia because the parade was designed to sell war bonds. During World War I, Americans were really expected to buy what were known as Liberty Loans, war bonds to pay for the war effort. This wasn't just a casual thing. This is a full-scale marketing campaign, propaganda campaign, where your loyalty was called into question if you did not take part in this Liberty Loan campaign. So, Philadelphia is gonna have this big parade and John Philip Sousa, the March King, is actually gonna lead the band at the parade and they're gonna have soldiers and airplanes, which are brand new, of course, Um, fighting airplanes, flying overhead. So 200,000 people come out into the streets of Philadelphia, even though the health department knows that there's influenza around. Two days later, after that parade, every hospital bed in Philadelphia was filled. And Philadelphia had a lot of hospitals back then. Um, Philadelphia was one of the hardest hit cities. They lost between 12 and 15,000 people in a matter of weeks and they tried to set shut the city down what we would call flattening the curve social distancing they tried it on october 3rd sort of a a week later but it was too late that was one of the most important lessons i think that we can take from 1918 first of all they ignored sound medical advice they lied to people and said this is just the usual flu so lies ignoring science and misplaced priorities. They thought that the war effort and selling these war bonds was much more important than the public health. That's the decision they made in 1918 at great cost in Philadelphia. St. Louis, on the other hand, saw what was going on. They saw what happened in Boston. They could see it in New York. They could see it in Philadelphia. It was moving closer. It was moving further south and west almost uh, as time went by with the trains and and the movement of of troops around the country. St. Louis very aggressively went into lockdown mode. They flattened the curve. Their uh, experience at first in the Spanish flu pandemic was much better than Philadelphia's and certainly uh, uh, Boston's or New York's. But they relaxed too soon. So another really good lesson same thing in san francisco san francisco had taken a very very aggressive quarantining measures they uh, they commanded masks to be sold and the flu mask was the iconic image of the spanish flu period Uh, san francisco flattened its curve in december after the war was over people were feeling a little bit more relaxed they relaxed their guard and the Uh, the deaths and the uh, infection rate went way up again. So opening the economy too soon, opening the country too soon, reopening was a very dangerous thing in 1918, another very important lesson for us today. Um, It's difficult to um, understand in some respects why nobody knew about the Spanish flu. And that was one of the reasons it was so interesting to me as a historian. I had heard of it, I'd never really heard of it in connection to the war uh, as as much as I did as I started to do the research when the 100th anniversary of the flu and the end of World War I were coming up and I wanted to publish More Deadly Than War. Um, I was struck time and time again by how many people who did write about it historically talked about the fact that it was wiped out of the records, it was wiped out of the school books, People didn't want to talk about it. And the general impression is that it was so terrible and the death was so horrible in the United States when when pinned together with the deaths from World War One that people just didn't want to talk about it. They wanted to forget about it. They wanted to push it out of public memory. That's one of the reasons I think there's no great novel of the Spanish flu. There's no great movie of the Spanish flu. It gets a little mention in Downton Abbey, if you're a Downton Abbey watcher. And there's one wonderful short story by Katherine Ann Porter called uh, Pale Horse, Pale Rider, which is a... Uh, really captures what the feeling of, of the time was. Catherine Ann Porter did have the Spanish flu herself. She was a reporter for a Denver newspaper and nearly died. Um, I tell her story in More Deadly Than War too. but th- that's about it in terms of the popular culture. It's really erased from popular memory. And so it's a perfect example of how we do hide history sometimes in school books. But, um, it's also, as I mentioned when we started the conversation, a perfect example of why we really should know and understand history, because there are clearly so many lessons to be taken from 19, what happened in 1918.
1: I think I think so much of what you just said there is so relevant to today. Like we're recording this on April 28th, and yesterday Georgia was opening up their movie theaters, their golf courses, their restaurants, and it it's all that economic pressure, like you said, with um, the parades, and that, you know, there was pressure politically for them to have those parades and things like that. And just, I mean, I don't think there's actually an answer to it. But like, why is it as a country, we have such a hard time with a national approach to actually solving this, like if the doctors and scientists are all telling us, in 1918, this is what we need to do if we want to eradicate this, and if scientists and doctors are telling us today, this is what we need to do to, to stop this. Why can't we just listen? And I don't think there's necessarily even an answer to it. But
0: uh, That's a really good and really important question. And I wish I had a, a safe and non-partisan answer <laughs> to it. But in part, I have to be honest here and say, you know, this book was published more daily than war was published two years ago. And obviously in writing the book, I, I asked that question, You know, can this happen again? And the answer two years ago was certainly yes. And if you go back farther in recent history, you have other cases where people have been talking and worrying about the next big pandemic for a long time. This is not a, a, something that caught anyone by surprise. And that is one of the big lies of right now the notion that no one could have expected this, no one could have predicted this is simply not true. And we have to say that. We have had an epidemic uh, an, uh, epidemic information society, uh, group in the CDC for a very long time. They're very smart people. Uh, I remember reading the head of the CDC talking about the Spanish flu a couple of years ago, and he said the idea of another pandemic was what kept him awake at night. So no one should have been unprepared for this, but it's again then the case of two things that I've mentioned already, ignoring sound science and misplaced priorities. So if your priorities are cutting the budget uh, because you don't think that science is really all that important, or that it should be left to uh, private industry to do these things, you are knocking down some of the guardrails that have been built in 100 years since 1918. Um, I know that WHO, the World Health Organization, is somewhat controversial right now. Nonetheless, they have done an extraordinary job for the most part over many decades of improving health around the world, improving vaccination rates. Bill Gates' work in vaccinations has been extraordinary and Bill Gates talked about pandemics 10 years ago, maybe longer. So again, this is not something that should have caught anyone by surprise. And indeed, we did have a pandemic response team that was related to the National Security Council that was established after the Ebola crisis uh, under the Obama administration. And we know that that office was disbanded as part of the National Security Council. Just today, you're, you're saying the giving the date, April 28th, I am reading today about the level of intelligence that was given to the White House in January and early February about this this pandemic and the high levels of warning. So um, you have to ask why that could be. And again, it sometimes comes down to those misplaced priorities. That you want to create, create uh, you don't want people to panic. You don't want the economy to go downhill. You don't want the stock market to fall apart as it as it did. And so those became the priorities as opposed to protecting the public health. And that happened uh, both at the federal and state level in some cases. So I think that this is a, a going to be a real moment of serious reflection once we get through this. Even though we're reflecting on it while we're in the midst of it as to, you know, what our priorities really should be in terms of public health. I hope that some of these governors who are making these decisions to open up their economy uh, in some way uh, are relying somehow on some good science. I'm not completely confident that they are. You know, there's a famous play, uh, An Enemy of the People by uh, Ibsen, and in that play, a doctor discovers that the bath water in a town are toxic. That people are actually being poisoned by the spa that that every all the tourists are come to coming to, and he says you have to shut down the spa because you you this is going to kill people and his actually, his brother is the mayor of the town and his brother says, are you kidding? If we shut them down, it will cost a lot and then nobody will ever come back. So that was the moment at which the economy trumped the public health. The public economy trumped the public health. And so that's always, uh, (laughs) that's been a, a conversation we've had for a long time. And I think we're having it right now. And I would probably be one to argue for the public health over uh, economy. You know, we can, we'll, we'll eventually have jobs and make money again and things will be open and we will be able to do things, but you cannot replace human life once it's gone. So that's why I would take the, the argument of 1918 that we should have spent much more time figuring out public health and a little less on the war effort than the other way around. One of the things I didn't mention, in fact, relating again to the war effort, is that President Wilson and uh, General Pershing, who was in charge of the, uh, of the army in, in Europe at the time, were told to stop bringing soldiers across the ocean, that those soldiers getting on those ships was continuing to spread the disease. They chose the priority of continuing to ship men across the ocean to fight the Germans, especially in the last few months of the war. So they clearly had a sense that that was a bigger priority than protecting the health and lives of the soldiers and sailors who were on those ships. And of course, each of those soldiers and sailors was affecting other people. So those are the, the questions that we should really ask ourselves today that they, they came down on the side of the war in 1918, at enormous cost to public health.
2: Do you think that this concept—I don't know if I, if I'm using the right phraseology here—but American exceptionalism, this this idea that we are isolated from from global events, plays into I I, I in conversations I have with just people out there in the general public um, in January, what and even early February seem to be like. Oh well, that's just elsewhere. I'm like you understand with airplanes we are connected, right? <laughs> it, it just seemed like there was this this idea that, that we're isolated, that we're exceptional, it's not coming here.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, American, uh, American exceptionalism uh, means something very different to me, and I'll come, come back to that in a second, but certainly the sense that fortress America uh, is an idea. That, exactly. that was certainly true in 1918 uh, to some degree, and, I think was reflected in the thinking of a lot of people in this country, including the president, early on in this crisis where, uh, you know, the president basically said at the end of January, it's one guy in China and it's not coming here. And if we keep those people from getting off the cruise ship, uh, we don't want our numbers to double. Those are the, you know, the statements that were made. So, you know, a virus is no respecter of borders, walls, and passports. The Spanish flu pandemic became a pandemic because the world was globalized by a war, a world war. So millions of people were moving across borders. Millions of people were on ships. Ships were going from uh, Europe to every port in the world to get supplies, to get resources. Every time one of those ships landed, In one of those deep water ports uh, in Africa, in Russia, in India. The crews were infected, the dock workers came on to unload the ships, and wham, the virus exploded. It had nothing to do with, it was no respecter of of race or nationality uh, and economic status to some degree. So the notion that uh, that, uh, we can uh, shut down the borders and keep out a virus is the first bit of very very unscientific thinking um, these are we now know for instance that in New York uh, that the cases have already been gene-mapped and the earliest cases came from Europeans not from uh, Asians so even the very uh, notions that we're thinking of the what became accepted common wisdom at the at the beginning of this crisis has already proven to be uh, mistaken. So no, uh, uh, viruses and parasites, uh, diseases from uh, any microscopic organism—they're uh, no respecter of borders, nationalities, passports, race, creed. Um, some of those things certainly have, can have an impact on the disease. There may be genetic predispositions to things. For instance, in uh, in uh, 1918, uh, n- native Alaskans were dying in the 70 and 80% range, uh, not the 2% range. Uh, they were clearly had no nat- native immunity to this virus that, Came and had never been in that part of the world before. So those factors uh, certainly enter into this. But the notion that we can somehow seal the borders against uh, uh, diseases like this in an era of complete globalization is one of the biggest misconceptions we could possibly have. And one of the reasons why international uh, cooperation at the highest level is more important than ever. We are not going to solve this problem by ourselves and by shutting down borders. It's not going to happen, especially once it's here, as as we're uh, clearly seeing right now. Um, These are diseases of crowds. Uh, They said that a virus loves a crowd in 1918, and it's still true. So um, that's where being a respecter of science has to come into play. And when you, as I mentioned earlier, when you disregard science, when you disregard the advice of medical people, uh, for either political or economic reasons, you are really taking grave, grave risks with the public health.
1: So we're down to our last couple questions for you here. Um, you know, in just talking to you for the last however long it's been here, it, it, it is so clear that you are passionate about not just this topic, but all of history. And so, you know, as, as teachers, we always want to know, like, what is it that inspired you? Like, who was the teacher that inspired you to become a historian and helped you to develop this love for, for the content of history, but also the ability to express it and write it? I, I mean, talk about that process for you.
0: Great, thank you. Um, The truth is that I I really believe that I became a a historian and a lover of history when I was about five years old because uh, my father's idea of summer vacation was to throw us in the back of the car with some army surplus tents and sleeping bags, and they truly were army surplus. I'm talking about, you know, late 1950s. Uh, So these were, you know, Direct from World War II supplies, and we go off uh, camping. And we went to places like Gettysburg and Valley Forge and Fort Ticonderoga in upstate New York. I remember being five years old and going to Gettys uh, to Fort Ticonderoga. I remember standing in the field at Gettysburg when I was nine and knowing that something extraordinary had happened here. So to me, history was a matter of not of just dates and battles and speeches. History was something that happened in real places to real people, and you could smell it, you could taste it, you could feel it. I was a nine-year-old at Gettysburg. I did not understand you know, all the reasons for the war, obviously, but I did know that something extraordinary had happened in that place, and as I eventually turned to writing, I always wanted to have that sense, and I always loved to read history, I loved to read biography, I was interested in in real stories. Um, So I always wanted to have that same sense of visceral excitement uh, about history that I felt as that nine-year-old child. I mean, I certainly had very good history teachers over the years, uh, both in junior high school, and in high school, um, I can't single out one in particular that, uh, that uh, ignited me, but I was, I was always drawn to history as a child, as I said, because of that childhood experience. And I think it's very important as teachers, as, as educators, and as parents to make sure that, you know, look, I'm surrounded by books. I love history books, but history doesn't happen in books. And so that sense of, you know, the field trip approach to history is a very important idea to me. And I love to tell teachers, you know, whenever possible, get your kids out of the classroom. When I was writing one of my earlier books, In the Shadow of Liberty, the story of five people who were enslaved by four of our most famous presidents, uh, going to Mount Vernon, Montpelier, Monticello, the Hermitage, the homes of these presidents, and seeing the places where enslaved people lived and worked and seeing the fact that they lived and worked next to each other certainly informed my feeling for that book and what i wanted uh, i guess the passion i had for that but that also comes out of you know asking a question and and this goes back to being a curious person and i think that's part of the historical method as well being curious how do people who write the words all men are created equal and then fight and risk everything to defend those ideals how do they go back to a plantation utterly dependent upon enslaved labor that's the great contradiction in american history uh, the idea that we were conceived in liberty but born in shackles it's animated so much of my work for 30 years. I think it's one of the most important questions that we as a nation must confront and we haven't done a good job of it. Um, so it, it always comes back to me for, uh, to the idea of your T-shirt, History Matters. This stuff is really interesting. These people are really interesting. There are interesting stories, but it really informs who we are and where we are as a country and how we can get better. Um, and, and so that's sort of um, been my animating spirit. And in the past few years, I redirected my writing towards young adults because uh, I can glibly say I gave up on the, uh, the old adults because they didn't seem to really <laughs> learn anything. Um, but uh, and I, I say that glibly, but, um, but I really enjoyed uh, the experience of coming into classrooms via Skype very often, I did, uh, I've done hundreds of classroom visits, and I was really struck by the curiosity, the excitement, the interest among young people for interest, for the history I was talking about, and I could clearly see that they had the same feeling I did, that this is a lot more interesting if you tell really good stories about real people, and not just reduce it to, you know, proclamations and constitutional amendments. Those things are obviously important, but if we start with the human side of the story first and pull people in with real stories of real people, that will get more kids excited about history, I think.
1: So, go ahead, Christine, yeah.
2: Oh, I was just saying amen. But <laughs> <laughs> we're all nodding, nobody can do yes. that, but so we're all like, yes. nodding yes! Yeah. <laughs> Much I know,
0: going. I know I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here <laughs> and I have that you know that same experience when I go, you know, I speak to a lot of uh, social studies conferences with either NCSS nationally, a lot of the regional and and state conferences, and I love to work with teachers. I've spent a lot of time in the past few years um, doing more classroom visits because I want to try and support teachers in their effort to make this. Uh, and I, I know that social studies teachers are up against a big set of problems. And uh, Chris and I uh, discussed this a while ago and, and I've written about it for social education, for instance. I know that the standardized testing is an issue. I know that the idea that social studies is on the back burner is an issue. Uh, we've never been very good at teaching history in this country. This is not a recent problem. As I mentioned, 30 years ago it was being talked about, but you can go back much further than that. So this is a long-standing uh, issue, and for me, it's you know a bit of a. Uh, you know, I don't want to say crusade or evangelism. I don't want to, but I I love it. And I love to talk about it. And I love to share my enthusiasm for it. And I like to see when kids get the same sense of excitement from it, because we really have to get young people engaged in what's going on in the country. Um, you probably know the next book is called Strongman, uh, the rise of five dictators and the fall of democracy be out in October, it's the story of how uh, dictators come to power and men like Mussolini and Hitler didn't take power at the head of an army. They were elected uh, in an elected capacity in democracies and almost overnight destroyed those democracies. So this is a, so to me also an issue of really preserving democracy in America, making people care about their rights care about their responsibilities and understanding that it's not even just about registering to vote, it's really about voicing our opinion and getting out in the streets. Most of the changes in this country did not come from the top down from politicians, they've come from the bottom up, from grassroots movements like suffrage and abolition and the civil rights movement. And those uh, movements have been heavily dependent upon young people. And I think we're seeing that today here in the United States and around the world in uh, particularly the, the climate movement. Very, very obviously there's a 16-year-old child who's leading the world on this. And in, in the United States, the uh, the gun movement, these um, remarkable mm-hmm. children who survived the shooting in, in Florida um, have done something extraordinary. So people can change the world. One person can change the world. And that's... Probably the most important lesson of history of all that we can make a difference in our world and in the uh, world around us and and that's a, a lesson. We should never stop
1: teaching Well, I mean on behalf of literally teachers everywhere um, We all want to we all want to thank you just because I, you have been so accessible to teachers, like you've hosted World GeoChat for us. you've I know been involved in SS Chat and the SS Chat reads that they did a couple years ago about shadow of uh, liberty. Like teachers appreciate the work that you do. And so I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't end with just a, a massive thank you on behalf of, of history teachers everywhere for all the work that you've put in to make history accessible to young people and for you to be accessible to teachers across the country. So thank you for that.
0: Well, thank you for saying that. And I, and I say, first of all, it's a labor of love and I can say the same back to you. I, I just have nothing but um, admiration and gratitude for the job that teachers, especially the mostly the history and social studies teachers are the people I talk to most. I know they are dedicated and passionate about this subject And so uh, whatever I've done in the past few years to help them, I've done out of a sense of feeling like this is the way I could give something back um, for the wonderful things I've been given. And so I really uh, honor and respect and admire um, the work that you guys do and, and know that we have a lot of work ahead of us. So thank you.
2: All right. Well, I, oh, yeah. I feel like this has been like the great, like, you know, like I feel like a little kid at story hour. I'm like, so <laughs> 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 dialed in. I'm like, Ooh, um, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast for talking social studies. Um, I, I participated in the shadow of Liberty book study a couple of years ago and, um, my children really enjoyed more deadly than war. And we've had a lot of conversations at the dinner table recently. Hey, remember when you read that book? Um, so I, I personally really appreciate the work that you do.
0: That's a, a thank you. And that's an interesting point because when I, especially, I think mostly when I wrote In the Shadow of Liberty, I was thinking, yeah, this is a book that's aimed at, I have to say, and I, I, I'm not saying this uh in a mercenary way. I've always believed that I write books for young adults that are not really that different than books I write for adults. Um, they're shorter, there's more pictures, and the type is a little bit bigger, and a lot of adults actually appreciate those things. So my, my goal was when I wrote In the Shadow of Liberty, which was the first in the series of books aimed at uh, young, younger readers, was to not just write for them, but to write books that would become ways to have a conversation around the dinner table. Although I'm not sure I, I, I thought about talking about the Spanish flu around the dinner table. Was <laughs> what I had in mind, but uh, if that's what happened, that, that's kind of what I hoped when I set out on this, you know, kind of direction in my career a, a few years ago, which was a very sharp, uh, Turn about in, in many ways professionally, but it's been very, very gratifying. Uh, and to hear you say, yes, you're having those conversations around the dinner table. It actually means that um, my work here is done.
1: It's not done. Not done. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, nope. We're not done Keep doing it. Keep doing it.
0: <laughs> Thank you very well. well. You know, there's another book coming in October. So By October,
2: October, I've got it marked up my calendar. I don't know.
0: About- <laughs> Maybe we can have a chat about that one.
2: That would be fabulous. That
1: would be fantastic.
2: Yep. We're going to hold you to that. Yep. (laughs) Be careful what you offer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Throw me in the briar patch. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Awesome. Well, thank you all for listening. And we will be back in the near future with another episode, the subject of which will be determined.